Good morning. This is Randy, and this is my 19th podcast in my series, Common Sense and Ramblings in America. Today I'm going to um, read some excerpts from an article I posted about cancel culture. Um, it's a very lengthy article, so I'm not going to read everything, otherwise I'd be reading for over an hour. Um, but you can find it in common-sense-n-america.com, and that is my blog that I've been posting articles on since last year. Um, so I'm going to start, and um, it might be a little choppy, because like I said, I'm going to be um, synopsizing some of the readings or writings I put in here. In 2020, there is one C word more politically charged than coronavirus, canceled. The debate over so-called internet cancel culture, a rallying cry or a cudgel, depending on which end of the political spectrum you're reading this form are from, has grown gradually louder over the second half of the decade. Accelerated by the increased role of the internet over the last few months as the physical world went to lockdown, the rights and wrongs of canceling had never been more prominent in the cultural conversation. Earlier this month came the publication of Harper's Letter an open letter signed by more than 150 prominent authors, thinkers, and journalists, including J.K. Rowling, Salman Rushdie, Margaret Atwood, decrying what they see as the consequences of cancel culture, a loss of open debate and tolerance. A counterletter defending cancel culture is as a way of dealing with the problems of power, who has it and who does not swiftly followed. But how did we get here? Where did the term cancel come from? And why has it become a touchstone for political polarization? Defining the problem, what does canceling mean? Before digging into the history of the term, it's helpful to establish what exactly it means to cancel someone or something. Unfortunately, it was with so many uh, of these days, the answer to that really depends on who you ask. Most simply, to cancel someone is to reject them, to ignore, to publicly oppose their views or actions, and to deprive them of time and attention, and sometimes their ability to make a living. To many on the left, it is a classic tactic of the politically disenfranchised, adapted for the hashtag-obsessed internet age, a cultural boycott is how Lisa Nakamura, a professor at the University of Michigan who studies the intersection of digital media and race, gender, and sexuality, describes that tactic. When a group of people lack the power to change or dismantle something, one of the few options available to them is to refuse to participate. In the economy of the internet, where attention often equals money, such a boycott has consequences. On the right, cancel culture is seen as kind of internet mob rule, a blunt instrument wielded by the intolerant against free speech and open debate. Signatories of the Harper's Letter fear that the restriction of debate, whether by a repressive government or an intolerant society, invariably hurts those who lack power and makes everyone less capable of democratic participation. The cancel culture mob knows few limitations. 
While social media has empowered people to speak their minds, it has also empowered the masses to attempt to cancel those who express controversial opinions. Victims of cancel culture often end up jobless, friendless, and helpless. Those engaging in canceling people, however, gain nothing but empty satisfaction. In a cancel culture, everyone loses the ability to understand deferring perspectives, making echo chambers and their disastrous consequences inevitable. Cancel culture has been described as accountability bias proponents, but that is not a fair assessment of this phenomenon. If cancel culture implied accountability, then there would be an avenue for redemption. When the mob controls justice, there is no means by which you can regain their respect. In everyday parlance, canceling someone can be jockey and or jokey and inconsequential. Canceled for definition, to dismiss something, somebody, to reject an individual or an idea. Okay, but it can also be deployed totally seriously with real-life consequences. The story of how the term cancel entered the political arena encompasses both sides of the coin. Call-out culture versus cancel culture. A note on terminology. Another related internet term that gets thrown around a lot is call-out culture. A concept related to but distinct from the popular understanding of cancel culture. Really, a call-out is proceeding stage to a cancellation. If someone says something online that I find offensive, I can tell them and they avoid doing it again. Since the idea of a call-out is essentially remedial rather than punitive, activists like actress Jamela Jamil have publicly advocated it over cancel culture. Jamil, who has been a leader in calling out social media posts from celebrities, including Kim Kardashian, that encourage unrealistic female body images, has herself been the subject of vehement criticism. But as they recently put it, I am a fallible human being. I try not to make mistakes, but when I slip up, I refuse to then be cast away forever. Most human beings are capable of change and decency and doing better. Cancel that bitch. Cancel culture's on-screen origin. It's impossible to know for sure where the use of the word cancel as we know it began, but the best guess via Fox is from the mouth of a particular nasty character in Mario Van Peebles' 1991 New York crime thriller New Jack City. In one scene, drug boss Nino, played by Wesley Snipes, is railed at by his girlfriend for the violence he oversees. His response? He shoves her onto a table and explicitly douses her with champagne and dumps her words Cancel that bitch, I'll buy another. Despite its relatively small budget, New Jack City was the highest grossing independent film of 1991 and became something of a cult classic. Then in 2010, Lil Wayne, widely considered one of the most influential hip-hop artists of his generation, he currently enjoys about 20 million monthly listeners on Spotify, referenced this scene with a line in his song, I'm single, yeah, I'm single, 
and then and blank 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 had to cancel that bitch like Nino. The seeds of cancel culture had been sown. You're canceled when reality TV put cancel culture on the internet. In December 2014, American cable channel VH1's reality show Love and Hip Hop New York aired an episode in which cast member Diamond Strawberry tells her boyfriend Cisco Rosado that she has a six-year-old daughter. This was the moment that the term canceled took hold on Twitter, particularly black Twitter, a shorthand for a large network of black, largely American Twitter users who often coordinate to draw attention to political and racial issues via hashtags. Cancel culture developed hand-in-hand -hand with the Me Too movement, which swept the world in 2017 as women began to speak out about widespread cultures of sexual assault in workplaces and in industries. Some of the most prominent individuals accused face criminal charges. Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein was sentenced to 23 years in jail for rape and other sex crimes earlier last year. While financier Jeffrey Epstein died while awaiting trial for sex trafficking in 2019, but many faced their biggest recriminations online. Louis C.K. and Kevin Spacey. When Hollywood actor Kevin Spacey was accused of sexual assault by several actors, some of whom were underage, he was dropped from his starring role on the HBO drama series House of Cards. Replaced in the film All the Money in the World and the Gore Vidal bioptic he was supposed to be shooting for Netflix was also canceled. Spacey was charged with several sexual offenses, but none have so far been successfully prosecuted, and he denies all allegations. Nevertheless, his cancellation seems effectively to have ended his career. By contrast, comedian Louis C.K., who admitted to several incidents of sexual misconduct the same year, made a successful return to stand-up in 2018, including a sellout tour the next year and a new comedy special released in 2020. His career is diminished, yes, but not necessarily canceled. If I were to have voted, I would have voted on Trump, the first celebrity casualties. At first, cancel culture was most often deployed as a kangaroo court for alleged abusers and predators. Not anymore. If you type the phrase into Google today, you're more likely to find celebrity gaffes than crimes or abuses of power. The pandemic has proved a particularly fertile time for board stars to air their fruiter ear views in public. Can I West and Taylor Swift, for instance? But celebrities have been targeted by cancel culture from its inception. 2016 year, the year of Brexit vote in Donald Trump's election also can be fondly remembered for claiming cancel culture's first prominent celebrity casualties. Ken I. West was once a titan of American culture, the man credited with producing some of the most interesting music of our time and for criticizing George Bush over the plight of black citizens in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. Occasionally prone to outspoken and ill-judged public utterances, West took it too far for many of his fans when he announced on stage that he was a Trump supporter. He appeared in a photo op with the president at Trump Tower later the same year, and in 2018 declared that the slavery was a choice.
unfollowed on social media by prominent celebrities and labeled dangerous by public intellectual Ty Nishi Coates. Kanye West was officially canceled. The same year, the latest twist in West's longtime feud with fellow American artist Taylor Swift sounded the death toll for Swift's internet good name. West's wife's Kim Kardashian released video footage suggesting that Swift herself had agreed to a derogatory lyric West had written about her. Before publicly condemning him for it, at one point the hashtag Taylor Swift is over party was the number one Twitter trend worldwide. Do you know how many people have to be tweeting that they hate you for that to happen, said Swift in 2020, documentary Miss Americana. In the UK, the impact of cancel culture on several public figures has seen it becoming an increasingly common phrase. In January, actor Lawrence Fox was eminently criticized for claiming the Duchess of Sussex had not been a victim of racism on the BBC's Question Time. I have come to the conclusion that I may have never get an acting job again while at expressing correct opinions, he wrote. J.K. Rowling has been effectively disowned by die-hard Harry Potter fans for repeatedly airing her strident views on transgender rights. In July alone, hashtag Jody Comer is over party started trending on Twitter after killing Evie. Actress Jody Comer was photographed with a man who may or may not be a Republican. And UK rapper Wiley was banished from social media and dropped by his management company for anti-Semitic tweets. The rise of right-wing cancel culture. While the left have undoubtedly taken ownership of cancel culture in 2020, the political right has carried out its fair share of high-profile cancellations. The individual who has arguably gone, done more than any other to put cancel culture in a map also happens to own his presidential victory to a conservative base. Despite frequently deriding it, Donald Trump embraces cancel culture. Over the years, he has called for the boycott of everything from leading brands to films to countries. He also demanded the firing of innumerable journalists and has frequently fired or excluded from favor civil servants and politicians he has clashed with. But the rights dabbling in cancel culture is not confined to the present White House. In 2018, Disney fired Guardians of the Galaxy writer and director James Gunn from the third installment of the franchise after old tweets that included jokes about rape and pedophilia emerged. The tweets were brought to light by alt-right conspiracy theorist Mike Cernovich in response to Gunn's criticism of Donald Trump, leading to widespread speculation that the firing was politically motivated. Disney later reversed the decision and brought Gunn back. The same year, Senator Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was among the prominent Republicans calling for the firing of Democratic Senator and former comedian Al Franken following allegations of sexual assault. Franken denied all charges, but he was forced to resign. What's really behind the left's cancel culture? After Bernie Sanders won the Nevada Democratic Caucuses, liberal icon and MSNBC stalwart Chris Matthews compared Sanders' victory to Nazi Germany's invasion of France. Immediately after his comments, the leftist mob came after him, demanding that he be fired. This wasn't some neoliberal never-Trumper who had been masquerading as a Republican for the last two decades. This was a celebrity 
airhead running his mouth in the throes of emotion. This wasn't some lonely blogger writing uneducated opinions from his mom's basement. This was Chris Matthews, who wrote speeches for Jimmy Carter, spent six years at Tip O'Neill's chief of staff, was the D.C. Bureau's chief for the San Francisco Examiner, wrote books about the Kennedys, has had been the host of Hardball for over 20 years, and had the thrill of Obama's presidency run down his leg. But you make one clumsy historical analogy, which implies America's leading socialist might be as bad for America as the Nazi army was for France, and suddenly you're out of favor with your own constituency, and you're required to grovel to keep your job. The left has been demanding conservatives grovel and be fired at least since Richard Nixon dared to call Alger Hiss a communist. But that wasn't merely a reaction, that was a strategy. The left wanted power and shuttling up conservative or setting up conservatives was their strategy for grabbing it. But why would leftists try to silence other leftists? Back in the day, if a leftist strayed off the reservation, his comrades would ignore the sin so the sinner could keep spewing his leftist nonsense the other 99% of the time. Those days seem to be gone. For centuries, philosophers have argued that information we receive directly from the world is a better and more reliable source of knowledge than information we receive indirectly from the testimony of others. This reliable kind of direct knowledge is gathered from personal observations, personal experience, and other reasonings. Direct knowledge isn't infallible, of course. If I told you I saw Bigfoot on a moonless night running through a thick wood, you might question the accuracy of my observation. My personal experiences might be too narrow to support my general conclusions. My reasoning might be based on bad premises. Despite the potential weakness of direct knowledge, the information we get from testimony of others, known as indirect knowledge, is always worse. Assuming this testimony comes from someone with direct knowledge, that direct knowledge carries the same weaknesses that our own direct knowledge bears. Plus, as a testimony is passed from person to person, the information, if it can gaze, conveys, can be distorted by the process of transmission. On top of that, there's always a chance that the person sharing their knowledge is actually a liar and his testimony is intended to deceive. Philosophers understand these weaknesses as they built in systems and principles to measure the reliability of knowledge gained from observation, experience, and reasoning, which I won't get into here. They also came up with a safeguard for knowledge based on testimony. This safeguard is known as reasonableness and requires the person receiving the testimony to evaluate the character of the person who's testifying. The testimony from a person of good character with a track record for accuracy and reliability is a far safer source of indirect knowledge than an habitual liar who regularly gets his facts wrong. These philosophical safeguards were hammered out at a time when philosophers expected most of the knowledge people relied on to be direct. They expected people to get their hands dirty in the real world where they could observe, experiment, and reason things out for themselves. It was also a time when philosophers expected indirect knowledge to come from people who were known, whose character could be observed, whose track record be could be evaluated. These included family, friends, co-workers, teachers, pastors, reporters, and magistrates who lived together in the same local area. Indirect knowledge could be relied on because 
the people providing it could be trusted. As centuries have passed, these expectations have crumbled. Our connection with the world is mediated more and more through various screens. TVs, monitors, tablets, and phones making the vast majority of our knowledge indirect. Meanwhile, we've never met our sources of indirect knowledge and have no reliable way to evaluate their character. At the moment when it's most important for us to evaluate those sources our indirect knowledge, we have the least access to those sources. If we don't have access to the sources of the information, the best we can do is gauge the accuracy and reliability of the reports. The reporter might be a womanizing drunk, but when he sits down to write, he always is careful with his sources and accurate with his facts. We're almost there. Just two more pieces to snap into the puzzle. Somewhere among this winding road, rationalism becomes the king of the philosophical hill. Instead of evaluating the reliability of knowledge by examining source, rationalism evaluated knowledge by examining its content. If I told you a rationalist I had witnessed a miracle, that I had seen a man walk on water or raise the dead, he wouldn't waste his time evaluating my honesty, accuracy, or even sanity. Rationalism tells him that there are no such things as miracles, so he can reject my testimony, giving without a second thought. Last piece. Rationalism is hard. It has principles and rules and forces you to think carefully about things. Postmodern America has skillfully avoided this hard work by valuing feelings over ideas. Or rationalists rejected testimony because it violated certain principles of thought and knowledge. Postmoderns reject testimony because it makes them feel bad. Now we can lay out the philosophical foundations of the mob mentality we see today. First, they are encouraged to accept or reject the testimony of others by evaluating the content of the report, never the character of the reporter. Second, they are encouraged to accept content as true only when it confirms to their own personal preferences and feelings, not because it's accurate or consistent with the stated principles. And that brings us back to Chris Matthews. When he compared Bernie Sanders to a Nazi invasion, the people who reacted didn't evaluate the content of Matthews' commentary. If they had, they would have heard Matthews compare the inevitability of Sanders' nomination after just three primaries to the inevitability of France's downfall after just a couple of days of fighting. They also didn't consider Matthews' long and consistent support of leftism. If they had, they would have heard him say a lot of complimentary things about Sanders, and they might have noticed he never said the word Nazi. Instead, they evaluated how his commentary made them feel, realized they didn't feel good about it, and called Matthews to be fired. The implications of this are serious. If you are liberal, you should live in a constant fear because speaking one word wrong or even misunderstood word will force you to grovel before the mob. You won't be able to rest on your track record. Either you made the people feel bad, and that has consequences. If you're conservative, realize that you can't reason with people anymore. You have to win their hearts without going through their minds. Understanding you're not just in a political battle, you're in a political battle and arm yourself accordingly. I see that I'm over 23 minutes, and um, I barely scratched the surface of this article. So I would advise go online, go to my blog, and read it. There's a lot of good stuff in here. So, 
I'm going to end it here. It seems like a good place to end it. Uh, it gives you an idea that cancel culture is everywhere, and it is a real big problem. So as always, be safe, guys, and until next week, uh, take care, and you have a great day.